Well, I like to think that men are generally resourceful. We're often doers. And generally, we don't talk about feelings as much as we like to see results. This is why men often connect better through activity uh, than words. We connect when something gets fixed, we bond when something gets built, we, we, we grow closer because we have this shared experience together, like around a golf or watching a game. But whether male or female, whatever the activity, we all love, we all love the feeling of accomplishment. Something is being achieved and success feeling measurable. Um, and I think it's fair to say that all of us equally struggle when things in life feel out of control. And sometimes it just doesn't matter how much that we care for, where we want, where we pray, or how much we love, we experience moments in our personal lives, in our collective experience, where we are just limited or helpless to produce desired results. And when we find ourselves here, I think there's some really important questions that we need to wrestle with. We need to ask, so where do we turn when we reach our absolute limit? What is your source of hope when you feel stuck? When you have exhausted your financial, relational, mental, and physical resources, what is it that you begin to discover about yourself? I believe that it's in this space of feeling most helpless that God can meet us in a reorienting in a powerful way, simply because we're more likely to find him when we quit trying to fend for ourselves. I'm afraid that a lot of times we pursue God, we surrender to Jesus as sort of a last resort, or we seek God as one of many other options. And what I'm trying to distill this down to is the idea of finding our new life in Christ as a source of dependency. And so in this gospel encounter that I want to read today, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. <clears throat> But we have a royal official. Now that's an interesting term and there's really some really significant layers that I want to peel back for us and make this feel like you can really resonate with this. Now this is a royal official. It means that he's a man of significant financial means. He's a man of power and authority who also happens to be a dad unable to care for his son. He's losing what he loves, and he feels out of control. And he does the best thing possible. In desperation, he surrenders. He swallows any pride, and he asks for help. His normal operating procedure in terms of getting stuff done, producing results, doesn't work, so he steps out <clears throat> in humility through confession. 
If there was a picture that I would love for all of us to adopt today, a shift that we need to make in our spiritual condition, it's moving from the idea of self-sufficiency to utter dependency. And when it means taking a step into community, it's not independence, but it's interdependence. This is the picture of a step we make towards spiritual growth and maturity. But in John chapter 4, we have this royal official, this father asking Jesus to heal his son. And it goes at the end of this chapter, uh, beginning in verse 46, and it says this, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. Okay, I just need to pause there. Cana, this is the first place that Jesus had visited and done his miracle. The first miracle that Jesus performs was in Cana at a wedding. Now, <clears throat> he visited Cana, and this other guy comes from Capernaum, which is about a day's walk. It's 18 miles. But when he went to a wedding and he pulled off the best party trick in the history of house parties, he turned water into wine. Now, that's really fun. That's really significant. But if you were a Jewish person paying attention, you wouldn't have just seen the party trick. If you peel back a layer, the fact that Jesus performs this at a wedding was more than about libations. It was about covenant. A Hebrew person would have recognized the backdrop of the miracle was at a covenant ceremony of marriage. And so the picture would have been, when was the last time that God was being married to his people? And it would have been a picture of Mount Sinai. It would have been a picture of the Ten Commandments, where Moses was leading the people from their slavery into freedom towards the promised land. And so it was about God being married to his people despite being oppressed or even wayward. The point is, to these people, it was memorable and it spoke volume. Now Jesus is back. He's got reputation. They remember the last time he was here. So let's read what happens with this royal official because it's fascinating when you understand the detail of this passage. Again, in verse 46, it says this, um, and, and there was a royal official whose son was laying sick at Capernaum, again, about a day's walk, 18 miles or so. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So, Here's the picture that he has. Well, let me just read. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. So the picture is that this man of means, this man of culture and education, this man of status comes to him and he starts begging. I don't know if I've ever begged anyone. But this man starts begging and Jesus dismisses his request feeling like he's Im implying that he has the wrong motives, like he's just looking for another party trick. 
I think that the humanity of Jesus in this moment is on full display. And we can all understand the feeling of being used. Maybe the feeling like they're just consuming me for what I can give them. I think Jesus might even be feeling underappreciated, like they're missing the point, perhaps even taken advantage of. But then he asks a second time. He asks in verse 49, he says, the royal said, sir, please come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, you may go. Your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and he departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so he and all his household believed. This was the second miracle, miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come uh, to, from Jerusalem, Judea to Galilee. Now, Jesus invites faith beyond signs. Why? Because he seeks a relationship with us. That's a really important idea because a lot of us approach God un not meaning to, but for what we can get out of it. We can get blessing or we can get heaven. We can avoid hell. We can get lots of things out of a relationship. But the most important thing out of seeking Christ is intimacy, period. And so he kind of has to vet out the motives of this guy. Now, he's basically saying, to all of us, will you follow when you don't understand? Will you follow when the answer, you don't get the answer that you're necessarily looking for? Now, most miracle accounts in antiquity and in the Old Testament, New Testament required the miracle worker to be present. But this official leaves and begins his day-long journey. Imagine what this journey would be like. Normally, you would begin in the morning because it's an 18-mile hike. So because darkness would have hit, he would have had to take up lodging along the way. You're not going to travel in pitch black. So now he's making the journey home. Imagine what you're like. This guy's not really a believer. He didn't become a believer until he got home and saw and did the math on the miracle. But he's thinking, Jesus said, go, he'll make him. So I'm thinking, having to go through this, this anxiety, this anticipation, must have been for the official to travel back home simply at the mention of healing. Of course, when he arrived, he does the math and on Jesus' words, and he realized. And, and so do you think that this changed his life in terms of his beliefs or his priorities or even his desires? Do you think this man of means saw his wealth, his status, his possessions in the same way afterward? No, because the gospel always creates a disruption, a disorder, so that we would reorder our life in a new and a fresh way. And the gospel is supposed to interrupt us so that we can do now, what I think is interesting about this passage is that <clears throat> this official was a part of, of Herod's court. So Herod Antipas was in power at this time. 
And Jesus would have known that this royal official was a part of the inner circle of Herod, the same court that had already beheaded Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, because John had called out Herod for marrying his brother's wife. So the court of which this royal official was a part of had already been a part of the beheading of his cousin. So here's this moment. Jesus would have known this, which makes this interaction even more interesting. He was a wealthy aristocrat, probably not very religious. He was cultured, he was educated, he was influential, which leaves little room for faith, except for when things move beyond the realm of control. Imagine what it would have been like for him to show up at work on Monday morning. Oh, I heard what you did. But remember, he's simply a desperate dad reaching out. And so this is where I think it becomes really meaningful, is that the gospel is supposed to interrupt us so that we can reorder our new life in Christ. And maybe we can simply say it this way. Sometimes the best resource that uh, is when we're willing to make our lives an offering. We mostly like to be in a position to help or to give or, or to somehow serve or to do the favor. But when we find ourselves out of control, when we find ourselves with no other resource, maybe the best resource we have is the ability to just make our own lives an offering. See, we're saved by not only seeing our need for God, but also seeing that all that we have is a gift. The first thing is we can't save ourselves any more than this royal official, this dad, could save his son. And it required all the humility in the world to simply confess his need. And that's what he did. And it was at that moment that he was able to receive the healing that God had intended for him. But once we experience that salvation encounter, there's a, supposed to be a new perspective that all of my life isn't what I deserve, it's a gift. And if all that I have is a gift, then all that I have is a sacred trust. And I don't have to hold it so closely. Some of you might be familiar um, with, a, there's, I want to use the phrase, a former billionaire by the name of Chuck Feeney. He kept a life very under wraps for so long, but about a decade ago, I read the book, The Billionaire Who Wasn't. And it was a fascinating read. Um, Chuck Feeney has given away 99% of his $6.3 billion estate in order to help underprivileged kids go to college, as well as a bunch of other things. In fact, out of the $6.3 billion, he's now worth around $2 million with an goal to divest himself of all his wealth. Chuck Feeney was the co-founder of what we now know today as duty-free shopping. Have you ever traveled through an airport? There's always a duty-free thing. Well, he would offer high-end concessions to traveler free of the import taxes, and this is what earned him his fortune. And when he sold it to Louis Vuitton, 
for $1.62 billion, he retained 31% of the share of the company. Now, Chuck Feeney was born um, in New Jersey during the Great Depression, Depression, and he came up in a very modest, blue-collar, Irish-American parents. And he served in the U.S. Air Force as a radio operator during the Korean War. And then he began a career selling duty-free liquor to U.S. naval personnel in Mediterranean ports in the 50s. He just had this idea that he could sell uh, and make money. And here's what his one quote he said. He said, I had one idea that never changed in my mind, that you should use your wealth to help people. I try to live a normal life the way I grew up. I set out to work hard, but never to get rich. So Chuck Feeney, to this day, lives a very low-profile life, a low-cost existence, and he's rejected international jet-setting lifestyles that all of his business par partners enjoy. He wears a $15 watch. He flies coach. He eats in diners. His favorite meal is just a, a, a grilled cheese with ham and tomato. And he doesn't even own a car. In fact, he rents an apartment in San Francisco, and he often just takes the Muni bus and, and, and passes on any kind of Uber or um, limousine services. He has refused to be interviewed or photographed and up until recently, uh, and he wanted to refuse to have his name even mentioned in connection with any of the projects he's funded. But as of 2012, he has made grants totaling $6.2 billion since 1982, and he plans to use the remaining 1.3 billion by, uh, in, in the next few years. And it supported health projects, hospitals, universities, um, Australia, Bermuda, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, South Africa, United States, Vietnam. Um, he was a graduate of Rutgers, and so there's lots of buildings built by him, but don't reveal his name. And he's one of the largest charitable donors in each of these countries in which he operates, and the single largest fundraiser of aging and comprehensive immigration reform in the United States. But here's the thing, just like the royal official, Chuck Feeney has a significant amount of resources, yet all the wise investments he's made in education or in immigration and hospitals and social projects doesn't mean he solved any one problem, except he's helped many. And he surrendered what he does have in hopes of being part of repairing and restoring a broken world. He's also surrounded, surrendered the need for recognition. And he found that giving itself was its own reward. Now, none of us have that kind of wealth. But all of us have the power to bring healing. And in the case of the royal official, healing started with his simple, humble confession of, will you heal my son? Last part about Chuck Feeney I'll just mention is that um, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates put together something called the Giving Pledge. And it was a, a targeted at the world's billionaires. It was the most wealthy people in all the world. 
And they started this initiative called the Giving Pledge because they wanted people to start giving while they were alive. And Chuck Feeney had already been, done, been doing this that he couldn't necessarily sign his name to it. But he says, I cannot think of a more personally rewarding and appropriate use of wealth than to give while one is living. To personally devote oneself to meaningful efforts is to improve, uh, to improve the human condition. More importantly, today's needs are so great and positive interventions can have greater value and impact today than if they're delayed when the needs become greater later. See, sometimes the best resource any of us have, what's needed most or long overdue is surrender because it requires humility. It requires humility to start a new normal. It requires humility to learn uh, what culture has taught us is acceptable. It requires us a new uh, method of operation. It means losing our life in order to find it in Christ. See, Jesus's life was a demonstration of how we are invited to live. He was busy, but never rushed. And he was interrupted, but was available. He grew weary, but gave willingly. He came with power and authority from on high and surrendered everything that you and I might live. That's the good news of the gospel. And you're invited to give your life to the only one who can promise new and eternal life. It says that the royal official took Jesus at his word and he left. And so my question to us as we just close in a time of prayer is, can we trust that God heals? Can you trust that God forgives? Gives you the strength to forgive. Can you trust that God saves or gives strength? Can you trust that God heals and repairs? Let me just invite you to just pray with me as we consider what in our lives might need to begin by an expression of humility in surrender. I would just simply ask, what in your life is crying out for change? Is there something that you sense that needs to be surrendered? Is there a fear? Is it an attitude? Is it an ambition? Is it a relationship? Is it a habit? Or is it just control? Our Father in heaven, I would ask that you would minister to our hearts and our minds and help us to consider in all of our affluence, in all of our education, in all of our network of friends and influential people, I pray that we would be people who would found totally dependent on you. So we want to willingly give up control of our lives. We want to declare your rule and reign. Father, I'm amazed at the desperation of a, of a resourceful dad who takes Jesus at his word and begins an 18-hour journey home only to realize that his faith was proven right. I pray that you reveal to us your faithfulness and how you have been providing, caring, how you've been sustaining us all along. 
but I pray that we would in ever and increasing ways allow for the disruption that is the gospel into our hearts and our minds and into our culture and into our homes and into our churches so that we can reorient our life in a transformed way. We can reorganize, reorder our life in knowing you. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I want to just close. I thought it would be a nice way to close uh, our time today, singing the doxology. And uh, I'll just put the words up on your chat feature. And um, Laurel, would you just mind uh, leading out with us as we sing this together? Um, The words are up on the chat if you need it. Let's just make this kind of a prayer of benediction as we close together. Laurel, are you unmuted? Go for it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I hope that this is uh, a special Father's Day for you. I don't know what you have in store. I know that these kind of days, they're not in the Bible days, but they are reminders of who God has been for us and how God has provided for us. I want to bring up just a couple of things. I I said earlier today, uh, by way of just your own prayer lives, we have um, Dalen and Lauren have been delicately watching um, their new son, born last Sunday. Uh, Carter Anthony has been in NICU this week, and we want to continue to pray for the Rock family as they figure out what it means to be parents in this day and age. I also want to make mention, we had uh, a really sad event in Bill and Connie's life that happened this last, I guess, Tuesday night uh, when we were meeting in Tri. But for many of you know, uh, Connie's brother, Rich, is down to about 105 pounds. He's battling throat cancer. He has not been a great patient, but he requires full-time care. And then his wife, Karen, was traveling to pick him up from clinic, of which he checked himself out of because... Uh, he just was not wanting to continue in some of the treatment, but um, she was hit on the highway in Florida head on. Uh, the two people that struck the car and crossed over the median were killed instantly. Uh, she uh, was airlifted out and um, has sustained about eight cracked ribs, compression fractures, broken ankles. She's got Um, she's in really bad shape. They have uh, four kids, is that right, Connie? That have all kind of descended back uh, on on Florida, kind of Fort Myers area, and are able to care for her. So thank God when families grow up together and still love each other and are able to provide care for one another. But this has been a life-threatening and horrific moment. And um, we were having this wonderful tribe thing, and they got a call, and We just started praying, but we continue to pray for that. I just wanted to offer out before we close out, if there's anything else that we need to be praying for, I want to make the church mindful of these things. 
Uh, is there any other requests that we can just be, be noting uh, together? Well, great. Well, this has been a special time. Again, thanks, Justin, for pulling dad and grandpa in for the dad band. Uh, what a Father's Day treat for us. I wish we were all together. If you remember last year, our new Father's Day tradition was to have a cereal bar for all for all of us after church, but we couldn't do that. Uh, but uh, you can raise a bowl and say cheers to all uh, your dads on your own. Let me just close this out in a word of prayer. And if you want to linger longer and catch up with one another, that would be awesome. Uh, our Father in heaven, we thank you that only you uh, provide life. And uh, I thank you for how you've provided for us. I thank you that you're a God who heals and you're a God who hears and you're a God who sees. I'm aware that we live in times that feel in utter disarray and our hearts um, are heavy with um, systemic problems in, in our society. And we pray for a growing sense of humility. Uh, we pray for leadership in need of wisdom. We pray for growing um, unity and peace. We grow, pray and, and ask, Lord, that you would hear the cries of the oppressed as you have throughout the generations and all of history, and that you would begin to heal a system that is tilted against the marginalized, that leans away from justice. And I pray that we would be your people of hope and justice and mercy who bear your name and, and, and share your light. May we be your instruments of healing and redemption. I thank you for how you've demonstrated your care in my own life. I thank you for my friends who are gathered this morning. May we be your church as an instrument of your redemption and salvation uh, in Austin as it is in heaven. I, and so I give you praise and I hold up these requests. Where we feel out of control, will you exercise your control over Rich and over Karen, over the Rock family, and all the needs that are unspoken today. Will you have your will and have your way? Have your rule and have your reign in us. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.